This is a recording of Prophet or Loss, Mosiah 1 slash Zenith, Benjamin slash Noah, Mosiah 2 slash Limhi, and the Emergence of the Almas, by Val Larson, published in The Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, volume 60, 2024, read by Val Larson. Abstract. Mormon's overwhelmingly dominant rhetorical purpose is to testify of Christ, which he and his protagonists often directly do, but he also communicates his testimony more subtly through carefully crafted historical narratives. His use of frame narratives is especially artful. In the Book of Messiah, Mormon frames the dispiriting account of Zenith and Noah's rule with the story of its aftermath, the suffering of Limhi and his people, which is recounted both before and after the central Zenith-Noah narrative, and which underscores the folly in the narrative it frames. The Limhi story is, in turn, framed by a Mosiah family narrative that features prophet kings Mosiah I, Benjamin, and Mosiah II, and that likewise underscores the folly in the Zenith, Noah, Limhi story through pointed contrasts with Mosiah I, Benjamin, and Mosiah II, the antitypes of the Zenith family kings. Benjamin's great discourse on Christ, the most important component of the Mosiah narrative, is also set within a frame narrative, which creates a political subtext in that great spiritual sermon, and that likewise underscores the folly of the Zenith family's failure to follow the prophets God sent them. The article concludes by discussing the emergence of the Almas as the first family of Nephite history, the connecting thread that runs through Mormon's account of the next ten generations of Nephite history. In the Book of Mormon, Mormon uses narrative to illustrate important truths. One truth he copiously illustrates is that bad things happen even to good people if they choose to reject the counsel of God that comes to them through prophets. One way Mormon artfully teaches this truth is by recounting the parallel narratives of two contemporary dynasties, the prophet-led Mantic dynasty of Mosiah in the land of Zarahemla, and the contrasting Sophic dynasty of a good man, Zenith, in the land of Nephi. Things must be alike in important ways to form a clear contrast. We contrast apples with oranges, not with prepositions. Understanding this, Mormon illustrates his truth about the importance of prophets by recounting historical narratives that are similar on a large number of dimensions, but that repeatedly prove to be type and anti-type when the parallels are closely examined. To be specific, Mormon develops his theme that it's foolish to reject the guidance of God that comes to us through prophets by comparing and contrasting the lives of similarly situated monarchs, Mosiah I and Zenith, Benjamin and Noah, and Mosiah II and Limhi. Mormon develops these contrasts and marks the emergence of the Almas as the first family of the Nephite nation, as the connecting thread that will run through the succeeding ten generations of Nephite history, using a sophisticated literary technique, the frame narrative. A frame narrative is a story that has another story embedded in it, with the main story both preceding and following the embedded story. In the Book of Messiah, three comparatively short frame narratives comment on and add new dimensions of meaning to the longer embedded main narratives that they frame. Mosiah 1 slash Zenith. Let us begin with the contrast between the first Mosiah, Mosiah 1, and his antitype Zenith. 
The contrast between these two kings clearly illustrates the superiority of prophetic leadership. Zero sum. The parallels between Mosiah 1 and Zenith are in many respects so exact that they constitute the literary equivalent of a mathematical equation. Zenith being the minus that cancels Mosiah's plus. Warned by God that the Nephites must leave their homeland, the prophet king Messiah, whose name means deliverer, savior, or Yahweh delivers, saves, leads an exodus of those who would hearken to the voice of the Lord from the land of Nephi to the land of Zarahemla. The specific point of departure is the temple in the land of Shalom, probably meaning the land or place of peace, Shalom, which had been a resort for the children of Nephi, but which they must now leave behind because peace with the Lamanites is no longer possible. In Hebrew, which is spelled without vowels, both Shalom and Shalom are spelled Shin Lamed Mem, S-H-L-M. During their journey, Mosiah and his people are blessed by the Lord, Yahweh, and led by the power of his arm. Having arrived in Zarahemla, they successfully integrate with a related people, the Mulekites, from whom they have been separated for 400 years. For the most part, the two peoples live in peace and prosperity during the three generations of the dynasty. Zenith does the exact opposite. Inspired by Satan or just following his own will, Zenith leads those who regret having followed Messiah on an exodus from the land of Zarahemla back to their 400-year homeland, the land of Nephi. During this ill-advised journey, Zenith and his people are not blessed. In their first attempt to return, they become divided among themselves and the majority are killed in fratricidal war. In their second attempt, they are smitten with famine and sore afflictions, for they were slow to remember the Lord their God. Having arrived in the land of Nephi, they attempt to live peacefully with a related people, the Lamanites, from whom they have been separated for 400 years. This attempted cohabitation is an abysmal failure. After an initial deceptive peace, the two peoples live as armed adversaries, engaged in more or less perpetual war during the three generations of the dynasty. This negative outcome in the land of Nephi is no surprise. Background information in the book of Omni helps clarify God's reasons for leading the Nephites out of their 4th century homeland. The situation in the land of Nephi was bad when Mosiah left, and it had been for a long time. We see this in the accounts of Omni, Amaron, and Abinadam, the last three small plate scribes who lived out their lives in the land of Nephi. Abinadam, the seventh generation from Lehi and the last in the line, appears to be a professional soldier whose life work is war. He declares, I with my own sword have taken the lives of many of the Lamanites. It's clear that a negative equilibrium has emerged in the land of Nephi. Abinadam's life seems much like that of his grandfather Omni, who wrote, I fought much with the sword to preserve my people from falling into the hands of their enemies, the Lamanites. In the report of Amaron, who stands between Omni and Abinadam, we see that genocidal battles are producing destruction on all sides, and the more wicked part of the Nephites were destroyed, for the Lord would not suffer, yea, he would not suffer, that the word should not be fulfilled, which he spake unto our fathers, saying, Inasmuch as ye will not keep my commandments, ye shall not prosper in the land. This string of negations reflects negative conditions in the land of Nephi, that make righteous living there impossible. 
Omni declares himself to be a wicked man, and Abinadom says he knows of no contemporary revelation, neither prophecy. So it's apparent why the Lord calls Messiah one as a prophet and warns that he should flee out of the land of Nephi, and as many as would hearken unto the voice of the Lord should also depart out of the land with him. But it's also apparent why Zenith and the others long to return to the four-century homeland of their people. Zenith and his companions are not alone in the longing they feel to return to the land of Nephi. Though they were compelled to leave it, the land of Nephi remains the home of the heart for the Nephite people throughout the remainder of their history. Nephites always go up to the land of Nephi, just as the Jews in the Bible always go up to Jerusalem. The direction from which the city or land is approached makes no difference, nor does their long absence from it. The journey to the respective emotional homelands of the Jews and the Nephites is always an ascent. Like the Jews, these Zenophite Nephites likely saw their covenant with God as a covenant of place, which makes departure from their land of promise an extraordinary trauma. The good I would, I do not. The evil I would not, I do. So after following Mosiah to Zarahemla, Zenith chooses to reject his prophetic leadership. This doesn't mean Zenith was a bad man. He wasn't, and that's a key part of Mormon's message. The importance of following prophets is all the more apparent because Zenith was a good, not a bad man. And yet, by rejecting prophetic leadership, he placed himself in circumstances that turned him into precisely the kind of person he least wanted to be, and he left his descendants in very difficult straits. Zenith starts out as a member of an expedition that is returning to the land of Nephi to recover their lost homeland by resuming the fight Mosiah had eschewed and fled. This is a war party led by an austere and a bloodthirsty man, a man whose focus in life seems to be much like that of Omni and Abinadom. This leader sends Zenith to spy on the Lamanites and determine how they can be destroyed. But while observing, Zenith saw that which was good among them and was desirous that they should not be destroyed. He may have seen the mutual love of Lamanite spouses, parents' love for their children, and children's devotion to their parents, acts of kindness between friends and strangers. He recommends that instead of attacking, the returning Nephites make a treaty with the Lamanites and live peaceably among them. The bloodthirsty leader rejects this counsel, and battle breaks out between the proponents of peace and the proponents of war. After more than half of the expedition is killed, the group returns to Zarahemla. The attempt to resume the centuries-long war having failed, Zenith now organizes and leads a second expedition that includes women and children, and that intends to make a treaty and live peaceably among the Lamanites. Zenith successfully negotiates a treaty with King Laman, who cedes to Zenith and his people the land of Lehi-Nephi. The name of this land suggests that Zenith has recovered the place and way of life of his fathers, Lehi and Nephi. So does the opening of Zenith's record, which echoes Nephi's opening of his. I, Zenith, having been taught in all the language of the Nephites, and having had a knowledge of the land of Nephi, or the land of our father's first inheritance, therefore I. King Laman also cedes the land of Shalom. Prospects seem good that Zenith and his people can live in peace, Shalom, with the Lamanites. In the succeeding twelve years, they do. 
But according to Zenaf, King Laman has just been biding his time. Suddenly, without warning, he initiates an unprovoked attack on the Nephites in the land of Shalom that destroys the peace. King Laman may have perceived some unreported Zenophite act as a provocation in Kausus Belli. Zenaf is forced to refound his people as an armed camp. He supplies his followers with bows and with arrows, with swords and with scimitars and with clubs and with slings and with all manner of weapons which we could invent. Putting his trust in the Lord, because he is a good man, he leads his people into battle, and they kill 3,043 Lamanites. Zenaf experiences great sorrow and lamentation for the 279 Nephites who have lost their lives, but now seems to feel no sorrow for the thousands of Lamanites who have died because he led his people back to the land of Nephi. To prepare for battle, Zenoph says, I and my people did cry mightily to the Lord that he would deliver us out of the hands of our enemies. This prayer is ironic. God had already delivered Zenoph and his people by inspiring Messiah to lead them out of the land of Nephi. They voluntarily return to the peril that now inspires them to cry for deliverance from their enemies. Because they returned, 3,322 people have unnecessarily died, and the killing is far from over. In the wake of this battle, Zenoph's views of the Lamanites change. He now sees King Laman as a cunning and crafty man, and the Lamanites as an idolatrous people, desirous of bringing us into bondage that they might glut themselves with the labor of our hands. When King Laman dies and his son takes over, the Lamanites again break the peace by attacking Zenoph and his people in the land of Shalom. But like his bloodthirsty predecessor, Zenoph has sent out spies so as to be prepared for battle. He arms all males who can bear a weapon and, in his old age, leads them as they kill Lamanites with a great slaughter, even so many that we did not number them. Like his former leader, Zenoph now regards the Lamanites as implacable enemies with whom there can never be any peace. They are a, quote, wild and a ferocious and a bloodthirsty people, unquote. They are wrongly wroth, 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 wroth with the Nephites because of their false traditions. And they have taught their children that they should hate Nephites and that they should murder them and plunder them and do all they could to destroy them. Therefore, they have an eternal hatred toward the children of Nephi. Zenoph has now become his bloodthirsty nemesis, a man who perceives no good in the Lamanites, no possibility of peace with them, who seemingly without remorse organizes his people to massively slaughter them. As he recounts these events shortly before his death, Zenoph seems to perceive the ironic tragedy of his life and of the exodus he led. All this information is given to us in his personal account of events. It is he who reprehends the bloodthirsty man, who attests that he himself saw much good among the Lamanites, and who then catalogues his subsequent personal involvement in their remorseless slaughter. In writing this account, Zenoph seems to have assessed his life objectively, to have maintained some emotional distance from the events he describes, and to have perceived his own fatal flaw. The good man that is still in him describes his original desire to return to the land of his fathers as overzealous. 
he implicitly acknowledges that he was wrong to have rejected the leadership of Mosiah 1, for the consequences of going his own way is that he and his people, quote, have suffered many years in the land, unquote. Mormon underscores the folly of Zenith by placing Zenith's first-person account of the Exodus he led inside a frame narrative that unmistakably features the failure of the effort. The first part of the frame narrative ends with a panegyric celebrating the power and importance of a seer who is a great benefit to his fellow beings followed by a quotation from Abinadi and the brass plates that condemn the people for rejecting the shepherd that God sends to them. Quote, oh, how marvelous are the works of the Lord, and how long doth he suffer with his people? Yea, how blind and impenetrable are the understandings of the children of men, for they will not seek wisdom, neither do they desire that she should rule over them. Yea, they are as a wild flock which fleeth, from the shepherd and scattereth and are driven and are devoured by the beasts of the forest, unquote. These verses highlight the error of Zenith in the narrative that immediately follows. In rejecting the leadership of Mosiah 1, Zenith blindly rejected wisdom. In returning to the land of Nephi, he fled the seer, the shepherd God had appointed to rule over him. As a consequence, his people will be scattered and driven and devoured by enemies. And yet God will suffer with them, will bear their burdens that they may be light, and will ultimately return them to the shepherd and fold they wrongly left. Guidance from God through prophets and personal revelation is necessary because human beings cannot by themselves accurately estimate or control the consequences of their actions. It's noteworthy that Zenith, who was initially well disposed toward the Lamanites, used the exact same phrase to describe them as Enos had used five generations earlier, both calling them a wild and ferocious and bloodthirsty people. The general tenor of each man's negative characterization of the Lamanites is also similar. It is likewise noteworthy that Enos, like Zenith, was personally well disposed toward the Lamanites. He prayed passionately that they would eventually be redeemed. Given each man's positive personal disposition toward them, the ideology Enos and Zenith articulate that characterizes the Lamanites so negatively should be seen as a social fact as a reflection of social structures and patterns of aggregate thought and action that transcend individuals and limit the range of choices available to individuals. However sincerely King Laman and Zenith may have wished for their two peoples to live together in peace, history has entrenched attitudes and perceptions that would load automatically in both parties when some inevitable friction arose between their two peoples. The cultural cartridges would automatically load and explode with the symmetry of Nephite and Lamanite mutual animosities being matched by the symmetry of their weapons. In Zenith's narrative, we see how quickly his views are reconfigured and reinstate the hatreds that made it necessary for the Lord to lead the Nephites out of their ancestral homeland. Ironically, though we have no writings of Mosiah I, who was a prophet and seer, the writings of Zenith have been incorporated in Scripture as a historical example of what happens when a people reject the guidance of prophets. While prophets' plain teachings in prophecies and sermons are an important part of Mormon's Third Testament of Christ, 
Much of the truth in the Book of Mormon is communicated more subtly through carefully crafted parallel or contrasting historical narratives that show rather than tell a truth. In this case, the truth that we should welcome and follow the Council of Prophets. The Benjamin slash Noah Nexus We turn now to the contrast between Mosiah one son, Benjamin, and Zenith's son, Noah. Here again, the importance of prophetic leadership is starkly illustrated. Type and anti-type. Mosiah one is succeeded by Benjamin, Zenith by Noah. In the lengthier accounts of these two kings' reigns, the striking similarities and more fundamental differences between the contrasting dynasties that have, don't have, prophetic leadership are more extensively and sharply drawn. The accounts of their reigns come to us in two distinct genres. Most of what we know about Benjamin we learn from a sermon he delivered during the coronation ceremony that transferred power from him to his son Mosiah too. So Benjamin comes to us largely unmediated. What we know about Noah, we learn from Mormon's summary of his life. So Mormon mediates the portrayal of this king, skillfully framing his Noah narrative with an account of its disastrous aftermath. The narrative of the Zenith dynasty begins in Mosiah chapter 7, in Medias Reis, in the middle of things. We arrive in the land of Nephi and find Zenith and Noah's people, now led by Limhi, in desperate straits. They are trapped in painful bondage to the Lamanites. Conditions are so bad that they would gladly become the slaves of the people who remained in Zarahemla if those wiser Nephites could somehow rescue them from their current misery. Having made it obvious in this frame narrative that the return to the land of Nephi was a disastrous error, Mormon now gives us, in chapters 9 and 10, Zenith's first-person history of the return, and then, in chapters 11 through 19, a third-person account of Noah's reign. The frame narrative recounting the misery of Lehmhai and his people then resumes and underscores the errors of Zenith and Noah, who each, in his own way, rejected the leadership of a prophet, Zenith rejecting Mosiah I and Noah Abinadi. If we read the Book of Mormon sequentially, Benjamin is well known to us when we first encounter Noah. Having just read the account of Benjamin's life, we are quick to see Noah is the anti-type of Benjamin, a kind of photographic negative that has all the same features, but always with the opposite moral shade, dark repacing light. The number and specificity of the paired but opposite attributes suggest Mormon wants us to compare and contrast these two kings. Consider these similarities and differences on specific attributes. 1. As noted above, Benjamin and Noah occupy similar dynastic positions. Both are the son of a man who led a migration across the wilderness, separating the land of Nephi from the land of Zarahemla. The father of both then became the first king of his people in the new land to which he had led them. Both Benjamin and Noah are the father of the last king in the dynasty. 2. Both kings are visited by a divinely commissioned messenger, an angel in Benjamin's case, Abinadi in Noah's, who foretells the coming of Christ and explains that redemption comes only through him. They respond in opposite ways to this messenger. 3. Both appoint priests, but the behavior and messages of the priests are diametrically opposed. Benjamin and his priests speak sharply to the people. 
They make it clear that they themselves and their people are sinners who must repent. Noah and his people flatter the people. They suggest that neither they themselves nor the people are guilty of any sin. 4. Benjamin tells his people that they are nothing, even less than the dust of the earth. Noah teaches his people that they are of great consequence, that they are exceptionally strong, that 50 of them are equal to thousands of the Lamanites. 5. Benjamin fills his people with the Spirit. Overcome, they fall to the earth. Noah fills his people with alcoholic spirits, and they, presumably, also fall to the earth. 6. Righteous Benjamin seems to have the one wife that Lehi allowed, and he forbids adultery. Wicked Noah has many wives and concubines and causes his people to commit whoredoms. 7. Benjamin works constantly to support himself and his family by his own labors. He serves the people. Noah is idle. He devotes his time to leisure activities and sensual recreation. Neither he nor his priests support themselves. The people serve him. 8. Benjamin does not tax his people. Noah taxes his heavily. 9. Benjamin considers himself to be no better than his people. Noah sets himself and his priests above the people. 10. Benjamin does not imprison his people. Noah does. 11. Benjamin leads his army into battle, sharing their risks. The first thing we read about him is how he leads his people to victory over the Lamanites and establishes peace in the land of Zarahemla that endures until the time of his death. Noah sends his army into battle while remaining safely behind. The last thing we read about Noah is how he flees from the Lamanites, leading his men not into but from battle. 12. Benjamin's people gather to and depart from the temple as families. During his sermon, he instructs parents to care for their children, to feed and clothe them, and teach them to keep God's commandments. As they return home with born-again parents, who have no desire to do evil but to do good continually, the prospects of these children seem good. Noah's people initially depart from the tower as families, but Noah then instructs the men to abandon their wives and children, who are being slaughtered by the Lamanites. As the fathers abandon them, the prospects of the children are poor. 13. Benjamin concerns himself with the well-being of his successor son, Mosiah II. He carefully stages Mosiah II's ascension to power through a coronation ceremony. In the political subtext of his coronation sermon, discussed below, he tells the people that they must not rebel against Mosiah II, that they must obey his commands and make governance easy by dealing justly with their neighbors and taking care of the poor. Noah takes no thought for his successor son, Limhi. He selfishly leaves him in the lurch, surrounded by people who are being killed and who are taken captive when the killing stops. Sorely oppressed and constantly threatened by the Lamanites, Limhi struggles to provide his people with the bare essentials of life, food, shelter, and physical security. 14. Benjamin and Noah both A. Build a tower next to the temple, B. Confront personal mortality and impending death on the tower, C. Having experienced political rebellion, seek to end it and unify their people, D. By delivering from the tower a saving message that urges the people to seek immediate salvation, E. Are then immediately replaced as king by their son, with each son, F. Being subordinate to a still greater king who lay 
first claim on the service of the people who, g, covenant to serve that greater king in order to escape his wrath. 15. At the beginning of the narrative, Benjamin's people are divided into two distinct groups, the Mulekites and the Nephites. As his reign ends, he unifies them under a common name. Noah's people are unified as Noah's reign begins, but are triply divided as his reign ends by the departure of Alma, the rebellion of Gideon, and the men's abandonment of their wives and children. 16. Each king dies soon after leaving the tower on which he delivered the saving message. Benjamin dies peacefully, beloved of his people, his salvation assured. Noah dies violently at the hands of his own people who revile him. The manner of his fiery death, which Abinadi prophesied, prefigures his damnation. 17. Benjamin saves his people from falling into the hands of their enemies, and they live in peace at the time of his death. Noah's people are in the hands of their enemies at the time of his death. 18. In sum, Benjamin follows in the footsteps of the righteous father he succeeds as king and lives in harmony with the kingship code of Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 14 through 20. Noah does not emulate the goodness of his father and violates all the provisions of the kingship code. The Two Towers As he develops the contrast between King Benjamin and King Noah, Mormon offers deep reflections on the importance of moral norms for societal well-being. He powerfully illustrates the social and familial consequences that follow from keeping or breaking the law of chastity. Implicit both in his symbols and in his narrative is a profound sexual ethic that properly places this essential aspect of our mortal lives within God's plan for our exaltation. Mormon situates sexuality within his larger history of a family and a nation, and thus more fully than elsewhere in scripture, demonstrates how important it is that human intimacy take the forms prescribed by God. Mormon's teachings on this topic are especially relevant to problems in our time. But understanding this part of Mormon's message may be a challenge for some. Western popular culture is so corrupt in its essentially pornographic and egotistical conception of sexuality that faithful members of the restored Church of Jesus Christ may sometimes attempt to suppress thoughts about sex lest they follow the corrupt channels excavated so deeply in the modern mind. But our mind, like nature more broadly, abhors a vacuum. We will have thoughts, and in this matter, almost above all others, it's important that they be appropriate ones. In his account of Noah and his people, Mormon very effectively illustrates what we should not think and not do. This is the less valuable part of his message, because in our culture, Noah's behavior is ubiquitous, and the consequences of that behavior are redundantly illustrated. In his account of King Benjamin and his people, Mormon gives us something much more valuable that is not well represented in our culture, a framework within which we can perceive the sacred character and true purposes of human sexuality. Within the horizons of this correct understanding, thoughts about procreative love can help us more deeply understand the kind of relationship we should have with each other and with God. In other words, Mormon helps us understand what sex should mean to us, not just what it should not mean. Benjamin's Temple Tower The centerpieces of the comparison contrast between Benjamin and Noah are parallel temple tower narratives. 
If we are to appreciate its power, this most complex and integrated part of Mormon's narrative must be read with attention to implicit sexual symbolism that sets up a dramatic contrast between the relationships of righteous Benjamin and wicked Noah with their respective peoples. The stark differences between the two kings are symbolized by the highest and lowest forms of physical love. Benjamin is associated with sealed, procreative love and the genesis of new life. Noah is associated with promiscuous, sterile lust and the loss of life. These alternative modes of physical love are of a piece with the general character of each man, the self-sacrificing altruism of Benjamin and the selfish egoism of Noah. As the Book of Morosiah opens... King Benjamin summons his people to the temple so that he can provide for an orderly succession and deliver to them a last, powerful, saving message. Both the modern function of the temple, sealing families, and the ancient function, symbolizing and anticipating the redeeming sacrifice of Christ, make the temple the ideal location for what follows. Benjamin has proven himself to his subject through long years of unselfish service. His relationship with them is clearly one of mutual respect and love. As the people assemble at the temple, they praise God for giving them this man as their king. The intimacy of Benjamin and his subjects, their unsurpassed love for each other, makes it appropriate that their last formal encounter should be symbolized by the most intimate of acts and should be metaphorically procreative. Because the multitude is so great... Benjamin orders that a tower be erected so the people can hear him speak. It is possible to read this tower as being symbolically phallic. Arranged around the tower, their doors appropriately facing the tower, are the tents of Benjamin's people. The people, gathered as families, sit inside their tents while they listen to Benjamin's final sermon. For those who read looking for potentially figurative meanings, it would be hard to conceive of a womb symbol more apt than these cloth or skin tents. And if we read the text in this way, it is appropriate that each family group, all the people who are genetically related, should be gathered together in one symbolic womb. To the people thus assembled at the temple from the top of the tower, King Benjamin begins to speak the word, that will produce a new birth. Alma later calls this word a seed that is planted in the heart of the believer and there begins to swell. A symbolic reading would be attentive to the double meaning of the word seed in the biblical languages and in Latin. In each of these languages, a single word signifies both seed and semen. Sera in Hebrew, spermatos in Greek, and semen in Latin. Again, if we read Mormon's account with attention to potential symbolism linked to his explicit birth metaphor, we may see that Benjamin's words symbolically have the effect of semen implanted in a womb. They precipitate a metaphorical birth. Having heard their king's words, the people fall from their symbolic womb to the ground as they would in a traditional squatting birth. And now it came to pass that when King Benjamin had made an end of speaking the words which had been delivered unto him, he cast his eyes round about on the multitude, and behold, they had fallen to the earth, for the fear of the Lord had come upon them. 
in a figurative reading, the people, after dropping out of the symbolic womb, are filled with new life as the Spirit enters them. Quote, the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, and they were filled with joy. Unquote. While sexual symbolism may be present in this passage, the birth metaphor is explicitly present. Again, addressing his born-again subjects, Benjamin declares their lineage and gives them a new name. Ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and daughters. For behold, this day he hath spiritually begotten you. For ye say that your hearts are changed through faith on his name. Therefore ye are born of him and have become his sons and daughters. And ye shall be called by the name of Christ. Benjamin's people have double paternity. While Benjamin himself is in some sense their spiritual father, at a deeper level he is, as he freely confesses, at best a godfather. These spiritual newborns take the name of their true father, Christ, and they have their father's attributes. They are sinless, having been purified of sin through his grace. And like their new spiritual father, they have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. To understand this account of Benjamin and his people symbolically, to appreciate the sexual symbolism that may be an integral part of the message, we must shed the corruption of our culture and view sex as Benjamin and Mormon and Paul and John and God seem to view it. If it is properly understood, sex signifies a wonderful oneness, emotional, mental, spiritual, and physical unity. If the relationship has its proper form, it is the closest possible earthly bond between two human beings. Husband and wife cleave to each other and become one flesh. One flesh both in the intimate closeness of their emotional and physical contact and in the result of that contact. A child who is formed as a combination of each parent's attributes. Parents thus become godlike, having the sacred power to create new life. If we understand it in this way, this union can be a potent, multidimensional symbol of the kind of love and oneness of mind and heart that should exist between Christians and their Savior, and between members of the heavenly Zion community. Just as Mormon does here in the Book of Mormon, Paul and John in the New Testament use the union of the sexes to signify the intimate bonds that exist between Christ and his people. They repeatedly cast Christ as the bridegroom, his faithful followers as the bride. Using a symbol that is still more shocking if wrongly viewed, Christ marked his oneness with us by having us symbolically eat his body and drink his blood. Like Mormon's procreation metaphor that suggests we are given a new spiritual life by being born of Christ, the sacrament symbol suggests that we are preserved in that life by being spiritually nourished and drawing strength and power from the sacrificed body of Christ. As this episode closes, Benjamin's subjects who have been born of Christ and been given his name and attributes covenant to serve their new, higher Lord so that they may escape his wrath. And we are willing to enter into a covenant with our God to do his will and to be obedient to his commandments in all things that he shall command us all the remainder of our days, that we may not bring upon us an never-ending torment, that we may not drink of the cup of the wrath of God. Benjamin now tells them that whosoever do this shall be found at the right hand of God. In Hebrew, the name Benjamin, a combination of Ben and Yamin, means son of the right hand. 
through this sermon, Benjamin has rid his garments of his people's blood and is about to join the choirs above in singing God praises while seated at his right hand, the place where the Messiah also sits or stands. Wordplay on Benjamin's name suggests that his now covenant people will join him there. Noah's people, on the other hand, will be on the disfavored left hand of their new lord. Having concluded the coronation ceremony, Benjamin is now replaced by his son, Mosiah II, and shortly thereafter, as he had anticipated while speaking from the tower, he dies. On this, and all other points mentioned, Mormon now gives us the moral mere image of all that we have seen in his account of Benjamin and his people and their lord. Noah's Two Towers We turn now to King Noah. The first thing Mormon says about Noah is that he did walk after the desire of his own heart, and he had many wives and concubines, and he did cause his people to commit whoredoms. Like Benjamin, Noah builds a tower next to the temple in Shalom, in his case, quote, a very high tower, unquote. But if we read symbolically, the phallic tower Noah builds represents a sterile, corrupt sexuality, just the opposite of everything Benjamin's tower may stand for. Noah builds the tower as a symbol of his power, of his ability to impose himself upon his own people and upon the Lamanites. From the top of the tower, he is able to overlook his own land, the land of Shalom, and the Lamanites' land, the land of Shemlon, and beyond that, quote, all the land round about, unquote. In the image of King Noah standing on top of his tower, eyeing all the lands that surround him, both those that belong to him and those that don't, Mormon creates a perfect symbol of all that is worst about male sexuality, aggression, violence, egotism, promiscuity. And having mentioned this first tower, if we read symbolically, he makes Noah's promiscuity quite clear, for he tells us that, not satisfied with one tower, Noah caused a second great tower to be built on the hill north of the land of Shalom. Since this second tower plays no role in the narrative, it is possible that Mormon mentions it because it symbolizes the material and sexual excesses of King Noah. Having mentioned this second tower in the next verse, Mormon reiterates Noah's promiscuity, and Noah spent his time in riotous living with his wives and his concubines, and so did also his priests spend their time with harlots. We'll now focus on the very high tower near the temple in Shalom that is the antitype of Benjamin's tower and on the end of Noah's life. Given the oppressive, wicked, riotous lifestyle of King Noah, it cannot surprise us that his relationship with his people was less than ideal. After suffering under his misrule for a number of years, some of the people began to breathe out threatenings against the king, who had just chased away Alma I and the more righteous part of the people. Others continued to support Noah. Both factions gather near the temple. Here we have a striking parallel with Benjamin and his people, but everything is transformed. While both peoples gather at the temple with the same political purpose, the replacement of the king, Benjamin's people come together because they love and wish to honor and obey him. Noah's people gather because some of them hate the king and want to overthrow him. When in due course Noah is forced to repair to his tower, he doesn't go there to deliver an eagerly awaited message from his loving and beloved people as Benjamin does. 
He flees there, chased by Gideon, a representative of those among his people who have turned against him. Gideon bears a sword, which if read symbolically, could be another phallic symbol, and he is about to consummate the relationship of Noah and his people by running Noah through with the sword, a consummation that differs pointedly from that enjoyed by Benjamin and his people. Part of Benjamin's message from the tower was that rebellion against him or his son was rebellion against God and made a man an enemy to all righteousness. But Gideon, who was rebelling against Noah, will later be described as a righteous man, an instrument in the hands of the Lord. And the people living with Gideon in the land of Gideon, which was named after him, will be especially notable for their righteousness. Thus Gideon's rebellion against Noah is the opposite of rebellions against Benjamin or his son. It seems to have God's implicit endorsement. Standing on his tower, Noah, like Benjamin before him, confronts death. But there are differences. As he faces death on the tower, Benjamin claims over-modestly to be concerned about his own welfare. He says, I have caused that ye should assemble yourselves together, that I may be found blameless, that your blood should not come upon me, when I shall stand to be judged of God, of the things whereof he commanded me concerning you. I say unto you, I have caused that ye should assemble yourselves together, that I might rid my garments of your blood, at this period of time, when I am about to go down to my grave, that I might go down in peace." While Benjamin, who will go down in peace, claims to be concerned about his own welfare, his life and his sermon both make it perfectly clear that his first concern is, and always has been, the welfare of his people. Now, as Noah stands on his tower in Shalom, he too is anxious to keep his garments unspotted with blood, not the figurative blood of his people, but rather his own literal blood, which Gideon is about to spill. As he looks about desperately for some way to save himself from Gideon's wrath, Noah spots an invading army of Lamanites in the distance. And now the king cried out in the anguish of his soul, saying, Gideon, spare me, for the Lamanites are upon us, and they will destroy us. Yea, they will destroy my people. And now the king was not so much concerned about his people as he was about his own life. Nevertheless, Gideon did spare his life. As he confronts death, unlike Benjamin, Noah claims to be concerned first of all for the welfare of his people. But Mormon emphasizes that he is really concerned only about himself. We can't take either Benjamin or Noah precisely at his word. Benjamin is more generous and unselfish than he lets on. Noah is less generous and more selfish than his words indicate. The parallel with Benjamin continues. Having caused his people to be gathered to the temple, having repaired to his tower, having confronted death, Noah now delivers to his people what is ostensibly a saving message. He informs them that the Lamanites have invaded their land and commands them to flee into the wilderness, and he himself did go before them. The people depart as one group, but are soon divided into two, caring only about himself Noah maximizes the distance between himself and the dangerous Lamanites. Unfortunately, the women and the children prove to be too slow to escape. The Lamanites catch up with the fleeing Nephites and begin to kill them. At this point, Noah commands the men to abandon their wives and children and save themselves. 
We now learn how deep this promiscuous man's familial commitments run. And we see that the effect of Noah's saving message is just the opposite of Benjamin's. Benjamin's people gathered as two separate nations, Nephites and Mulekites, but having heard their king's message, returned to their homes as one people, with a shared spiritual identity as children of Christ. Benjamin's people gathered as families and returned to their homes as unified families. With his message, Benjamin bound them in a bond of love to their Lord, their king, and their fellow Christians and their families. Noah, on the other hand, urged men to abandon their wives and children. He destroyed marriages, divorced men from their wives, made orphans of their children. All that one would expect from the illicit, aggressive, egocentric sexuality that his towers may symbolize and his life clearly embodied. It can come as no surprise that the men who chose to abandon their families and flee with Noah do not thank him for saving them. In the end, filled with shame, they enact talionic justice, burning for burning, and execute Noah in the same way he had previously executed Abinadi. They scourged his skin with faggots, yea, even unto death. The men who have killed Noah repent of following him and return, determined to die with their wives and children. Noah experiences the obverse of the spirit that comes to burn within Benjamin and his people, a fire that burns the body without touching the soul. The manner of his death prefigures his damnation in hell, just as the burning in Benjamin and his people's bosoms and the burning of Abinadi prefigure their exaltation in heaven. Like the people who heard Benjamin's saving message, the people who heard Noah's message from the tower plead for mercy, presumably prostrating themselves before the new Lord whose advent their king has announced from the tower. Here, as in Benjamin's narrative, their Lord has compassion. They, too, are born again into a new life, but in this case, a life of slavery under the cruel overlordship of the Lamanite king. Though Noah's son Limhi is permitted to continue as their immediate leader, he and his people must covenant to deliver up their property, even one half of their gold and their silver and all their precious things, and thus they should pay tribute to the king of the Lamanites from year to year. This penalty makes their lives unbearable. When they rebel and are again defeated, their cruel overlord subjects them to still deeper levels of degradation. God, the overlord of Benjamin's people, by contrast, returns blessings that greatly exceed any sacrifice that is made in serving him. We have in these accounts of Benjamin and Noah and their respective peoples case studies in the consequences of accepting or rejecting prophets and associated divine and devilish social norms and sexual ethics. Mormon gives us two contrasting constellations of related facts and symbols. On the one hand, there is a prophet, a temple, families gathered together in love, procreative sexuality that implies both physical birth and spiritual rebirth, the preaching of the gospel of Christ, the burnings of the Spirit, and people prostrated before their heavenly King. These things are all tied together in an integrated network of causes and effects that yield civil peace and prosperity in this world and salvation in the world to come. On the other hand, 
There is a murdered prophet, showy buildings, divided families, sexual license, corrupt priestcraft, burning bodies, and people prostrated as slaves before an earthly king. These things, too, are tied together in a causal network that yields the dissolution of civic bonds in this world and damnation in the world to come. Mosiah 2 slash Limhi, the seer and the scholar. As noted above, a central motif in this section of the Book of Mormon is the importance of having and following prophets. Mosiah 1 and Benjamin, who are prophets, are contrasted with Zenith and Noah, who are not. This motif is further developed through a third comparison between Mosiah 2, who is a prophet, and Limhi, who is not. Mosiah 2 is a divinely endorsed ruler of his people. He stands in the legitimate governing line established by his grandfather, Mosiah 1, and maintained by his father, Benjamin. The account of his coronation, with which the book of Mosiah opens, positions him as the rightful leader of the Nephites and sets him up to be the deliverer or savior of the Zenophites who have gone astray. His counterpart, Limhi, represents a best-case test of non-prophetic leadership. He is a wise, courageous, learned leader who is devoted to his people and eager to follow the counsel of God. And yet, he and his people remain in desperate straits from which only a prophet, Mosiah too, can rescue them. The Ur heir of the Zenophites was to reject the counsel and leadership of a king Messiah and return to the land of Nephi against his advice. The only solution for all their pressing problems is to return to the land of Zarahemla with the help of Mosiah II's agent, Ammon I, and there accept the counsel and leadership of a king Messiah, that is, to undo the Ur heir that is the source of all their troubles. In this section of the text, as in the earlier sections, the central point of the narrative, the necessity of prophetic leadership, is underscored by a series of quite specific points of comparison or contrast that link Mosiah II with Limhi. 1. After having been separated for three generations, at approximately the same time, Limhi sends an expedition to look for Messiah II's people, and Messiah II sends an expedition to look for Limhi's people. Limhi's expedition fails in such a way that it forebodes the complete destruction of his people. Messiah's expedition succeeds and saves Limhi's people from the doom that their failed expedition forebode. 2. As they send forth emissaries, Mosiah II, Limhi, and their respective people are in very different circumstances. Mosiah and his people prosper in the land, and their enemies have no power over them. Limhi and his people are impoverished and totally dominated by their enemies. 3. Both Mosiah and Limhi are attentive to the voice of the people. 4. Mosiah and Limhi each read the record of Zenith, including an account of wicked Noah and his priests, the death of Abinadi and the departure of Alma I, and the righteous from the land of Nephi. This history fills the people who hear it with sorrow and presages a major change in governance. 5. Mosiah and Limhi both summon their people to the temple where they listen to King Benjamin's discourse. Having heard the discourse, both peoples repent 
are spiritually reborn and enter into a covenant with God. 6. Mosiah's people and Limhites are instructed by their king to take care of the poor or otherwise deprived. 7. Mosiah and Limhites are men of the book. Each man's relationship with a text or texts is underscored. 8. Ammon describes a seer, and he and Limhi offer a panegyric on seers. Mosiah is a seer. 9. Mosiah has Jaredite interpreters that permit him to translate plates in unknown languages. Limhi has Jaredite plates that he is eager to read but can't, not knowing the Jaredite language. Having heard Mosiah too possess the interpreters and power to translate, Limhi rejoiced exceedingly and gave thanks to God, then says, Mosiah's interpreters were prepared for the purpose of interpreting Limhi's plates and unfolding their mysteries. 10. Mosiah too ends his dynasty and is supplanted as ruler by Alma too. Limhi ends his dynasty and is supplanted as Zenophite leader by Alma one. 11. Mosiah II and Limhi have religious authority, including power to appoint priests, but yield authority to Alma I and the church he founded. 12. Broadly, Mosiah's people were filled with joy and were exceedingly rejoiced. Limhi's people have great reason to mourn. Prophet, Priest, and King Mosiah II is a man of the book. When Mosiah II and his brothers first appear, we learn that Benjamin, their father, caused that they should be taught in all the language of his fathers, that they might know concerning the prophecies which had been spoken by the mouths of their fathers, and concerning the records which were engraven on the plates of brass. Benjamin tells Mosiah, I would that ye should remember the plates of Nephi, that they are true, and that we can know their surety because we have them before our eyes. This emphasis on the brass plates and the plates of Nephi is no accident. Possession of these records is probably the foundation of the family's power, power that Benjamin is about to pass on to Messiah II in a coronation ceremony. When Messiah I and his Nephite followers arrived in the Mulekite land of Zarahemla, there were fewer of them than of the indigenous Mulekites. Messiah I probably became the combined people's king because along with undocumented charisma and a likely marriage to a daughter of the Mulekite king, he had a documented key possession, the brass plates, and the ability to read from them the two people's shared history. After establishing the Messiah family's grounding in the written word, the narrative transitions to the coronation ceremony. At his father Benjamin's command, Mosiah too summons the people to the temple, where Benjamin speaks to them from a tower. Benjamin's tower discourse has two themes. The overwhelmingly dominant main theme of the discourse is an extraordinarily powerful call for all who hear it to come unto Christ, the Messiah, keep his commandments and be saved. But the discourse begins and ends with a frame narrative that focuses on the role of the earthly king and on the coronation of Messiah too. That secondary theme frames the main part of the discourse and throughout the discourse appears as a subtextual shadow of the main theme. The shadow discourse calls upon all who hear it to embrace Messiah too as their new king and keep his commandments which will be aligned with the commandments of God. The shadow discourse is developed 
or underscored in part by wordplay and visual display. It implicitly anticipates and comments on the story of the Xenophytes, which immediately follows it in the Book of Mormon. In one respect, the secondary coronation theme is given top billing. Benjamin opens the discourse with the frame narrative, describing how he was chosen and consecrated as king and spent his life selflessly serving the people and, through his service to them, serving God. He then calls upon his people to be good citizens. Behold, ye have called me your king, and if I whom ye call your king do labor to serve you, then ought not ye to labor to serve one another. By doing so, you will serve God, for when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. Benjamin acknowledges his own frail humanity, that he is no better than his people, and that all are deeply indebted to God. He tells the people, Ye behold that I am old, and I can no longer be your teacher and king. But the Lord God hath commanded me that I should declare unto you this day that my son Mosiah is a king and a ruler over you. Having affirmed Mosiah too is God's choice as king, Benjamin attempts to transfer the legitimacy he and his father have earned to his son. And now, my brethren, I would that as ye have kept my commandments and also the commandments of my father and have prospered, even so ye shall keep the commandments of my son or the commandments of God, which shall be delivered unto you by him. Benjamin equates the commandments of Messiah too with the commandments of God, and obeying Messiah too will ensure that ye shall prosper in the land and your enemies shall have no power over you the precise opposite of what happens in the Xenophyte narrative that follows. Along with the beginning, the end of a discourse is typically its most salient part. At the end of this discourse, presumably standing together on the tower side by side where they've been the entire time, King Benjamin consecrates his son Mosiah to be a ruler and a king over his people and gives him all the charges concerning the kingdom. Mosiah is taking on the responsibility of prophet, priest, and king, and those who were called to any one of those three offices were anointed in ancient Israel. Prophets, which is reported in 1 Kings 19.16, priests, reported in Exodus 29.7-9, and kings, reported in 1 Samuel 10.1. To be anointed is to become, in Hebrew, a Messiah, in Greek, a Christ, those words meaning the anointed one in their respective languages. So when he was anointed, Mosiah became a Messiah. In Hebrew, as in English, the words Mosiah and Messiah are similar, the main difference in Hebrew being the final consonant. But even the last consonants are similar in their points of articulation. In our English translation of Benjamin's Discourse, the anointed one is referred to as Christ, using the term most familiar in the Christendom of Joseph Smith's day. But Benjamin may have used the term more familiar to his audience, Yeshua, Messiah. Be that as it may, Benjamin's audience probably understood that the Christ he repeatedly mentions is the promised anointed one, the savior and deliverer of humanity. So in addition to being connected with Christ in the main part of the discourse by the homophony of Messiah and Mosiah, Royal Skousen says Joseph Smith pronounced these two words identically, Mosiah would have been connected to the Savior both by his anointing and by the meaning of his name, 
Savior, Deliverer, or Yahweh delivers, saves. If we recognize the strong connection between Messiah and the Messiah, the discourse on the Messiah featured in the main part of Benjamin's sermon will have as its shadow a political subtext that instructs the people on the relationship they should have with their prophet, priest, and king, and with their fellow citizens in the kingdom. This subtext is a kind of political echo of the spiritual, Christocentric primary meaning of the words. At the point of transition from the explicit political frame to the central theological discourse, Benjamin says, O my people, beware lest there shall arise contentions among you, and ye list to obey the evil spirit which was spoken of by my father Messiah. For behold, there is a woe pronounced upon him who listeth to obey that spirit. For the same drinketh damnation to his own soul, and receiveth for his wages an everlasting punishment, having transgressed the law of God. He cometh out in open rebellion against God. He becometh an enemy of all righteousness. The demands of divine justice fill his breast with guilt and pain and anguish, which is like an unquenchable fire. But woe, woe unto him who knoweth that he rebelleth against God, for salvation cometh to none such. Mosiah, one, faced rebellion when the Zenophites rejected his leadership. Benjamin also faced rebellion early in his rule. Benjamin is trying to protect his son from a like experience. In the subtext of his spiritual sermon, Benjamin frames political contention and rebellion against Messiah II, the new king, as a gross sin against God that will result in eternal damnation. For some of the Zenophites, eternal damnation was the consequence of their rebellion against Messiah I, and all of them suffered these many years in the land as a consequence of their rebellion against the leadership of their divinely appointed king. In the shadow discourse underwritten by the frame narrative, Benjamin underscores the importance of having prophet leaders, such as Mosiah I, Benjamin, and Mosiah II, who declare Christ, establish law, and execute the law as just judges. The people should subordinate themselves to these leaders. Quote, The Lord God hath sent his holy prophets to declare Christ to every kindred, nation, and tongue, that thereby they might rejoice with exceeding great joy. And he appointed unto them a law, even the law of Moses, unquote. Given the blessings of good governance, quote, behold, he judgeth and his judgment is just. It behooves the people to become, quote, as a child, submissive, meek, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord and their Lord seeketh to inflict upon them even as a child doth submit to his father, unquote. In addition to accepting the governance of their prophet leader, the people should be good citizens, treating each other fairly, avoiding behavior that would fill the inbox of their king with problems to resolve. They should not have a mind to injure one another, but to live peaceably and to render every man according to that which is his due. Whosoever borroweth of his neighbor should be according as he doth agree. And ye will not suffer your children that they go hungry or naked, neither will ye suffer that they fight and quarrel one with another and serve the devil. 
The king's subjects should meet the welfare needs of fellow citizens who fall on hard times. Ye yourselves will succor those that stand in need of your succor. Ye will administer of your substance unto him that standeth in need. And ye will not suffer that the beggar putteth up his petition to you in vain, and turn him out to perish. Ye should impart of your substance to the poor, every man according to that which he hath, such as feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, and administering to their relief, both spiritually and temporally according to their wants. Having heard all this teaching in the main text, the people commit themselves to obey the commands of, and thus become, the sons and daughters of their heavenly King, the Messiah Christ. In the political frame's shadow or echo of the main text, they commit themselves to obey the commands of, and become the sons and daughters of, their earthly king, the anointed Messiah, Mosiah. They declare, We are willing to enter into a covenant with our God to do his will and be obedient to his commandments in all things that he shall command us all the remainder of our days. Benjamin then says, Because of the covenant ye have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. And now King Benjamin thought it was expedient that he should take up the names of all those who had entered into a covenant with God to keep his commandments. And there was not one soul, except it were little children, but who entered into the covenant and had taken upon them the name of Christ, or Messiah. In the next verse, Benjamin anoints Mosiah, making him a Messiah king. In the political subtext, the people have taken upon them the name of the Messiah, Mosiah, and become the people of Mosiah, who are obligated to keep his commandments, much as they have taken upon them the name of the Messiah, Christ, become Christians, and committed themselves to keep the commandments of Christ. After being anointed king, Mosiah reigns in peace and prosperity for three years. His credentials as a righteous, divinely appointed, and anointed monarch are well established by his coronation ceremony and subsequent good governance. His bona fides clearly demonstrated he dispatches the Ammon One expedition to find the Xenophites who rejected their divinely endorsed political and religious leaders and who are suffering the consequences of their rebellion. Scholar, Priest, and King In a deeply insightful analysis entitled Limhi in the Library, John Gee has shown that Limhi is profoundly a man of the book and that the scriptures helped him be a righteous man. Quote, Limhi knew his scriptures. His passionate interest in records and scriptures might explain why he was righteous in spite of the wickedness of his father, the court, and the people in general. Furthermore, unlike Noah and his priests, Limhi takes these things seriously. We need look no further than Limhi for reasons to be serious about studying our scriptures. Unquote. Most of the things Limhi says cite a written text, scripture, or some official history. Limhi's words, as reported, seem to show a man who has spent a good deal of time studying and memorizing the records of his people. Limhi was probably more comfortable in the library than in the throne room. In his scholarly work, Limhi paid particular attention to the words of prophets. He knows his people are miserable. Great are the reasons which we have to mourn. And he attributes that misery to their rejection of prophets. 
Citing Zenoph's confession that he was overzealous to inherit the land of his fathers, Limhi says the people now suffer great evil because they would not hearken unto the Lord's words. Having rejected counsel that came to them through Mosiah 1, there arose contentions among them, even so much that they did shed blood among themselves, an apparent allusion to the infighting reported by Amalekai and Zenoph and an example of the spirit of contention Mosiah 1 warned against. Still more egregiously, a prophet of the Lord have they slain, a chosen man of God, Abinadi, who told them of their wickedness. Using the formula, the Lord hath said, and again he hath said, and again he hath said, Limhi cites three passages from the brass plates that warn people they will suffer the consequences of their actions, and then says, And now, behold, the promise of the Lord is fulfilled, and ye are smitten and afflicted. Then, as noted above, just before we begin to read the record of Zenith, Limhi cites passages from the brass plates and Abinadi that condemn those who reject wisdom and flee the shepherds, that is, Mosiah 1 and Abinadi, that God has appointed to lead them. From reading and experience, Limhi clearly understands that his people need to be guided by prophets. All of that information about Lehi is reported in the flashback frame narrative. Chronologically, Limhi first comes on the scene when during a Lamanite attack, he courageously refuses to abandon the women and children when his father commands him to do so. Probably as a consequence of that courage, he is the one among Noah's many sons who becomes king. G notes that whereas Zenith did confer the kingdom upon Noah, Limhi had the kingdom conferred upon him by the people. Chosen by the people to be king, Limhi makes a treaty with the Lamanite king and his people, then live in peace for two years. The Lamanites suddenly break this peace when the priests of Noah kidnap their daughters. While not entirely unprovoked like the first attack when Zenith was king, this unwarranted attack on Limhi's people redundantly demonstrates the structural problem that makes peace impossible. It demonstrates that Mosiah 1 was justified in leading the Nephites out of the land of Nephi as the Lord commanded. Limhi and his people repel the initial unexpected attack and find the wounded Lamanite king among the dead on the battlefield. The people suggest that Limhi kill the king, but he wisely rejects their suggestion, in part, perhaps, because he regards the attack as a fulfillment of Abinadi's prophecy. Instead, he summons the Lamanite king, finds out the cause of the attack, with Gideon's help persuades the king that the abduction was the work of Noah's priests, and then with the help of the king's brokers a peace with the Lamanites who are massing for an attack that's likely to annihilate the remaining Nephites. Limhi's wisdom and diplomatic skill thus saves his people from annihilation. This episode highlights the difference in the grace available to us through Sophic secular leaders like Limhi and that available through Mantic prophets like Mosiah too. Limhi delivers temporary secular salvation through ministrations of the Lamanite king. The king of the Lamanites did bow himself down before his attacking people and did plead on behalf of the people of Limhi. Mosiah too and other prophets bring eternal spiritual salvation through the ministrations of Christ the king 
who in the Garden of Gethsemane bowed down before God and did plead on behalf of all humanity, taking our sins and suffering upon himself, and thus saving all who receive him from both sin and death. Though saved by their Lamanite lord from immediate death, in the wake of this event, Limhi's people are abused by the Lamanites, who smite them on the cheeks, put heavy burdens on their backs, and drive them as they would have dumb ass, that the word of the Lord pronounced by Abinadi might be fulfilled. Thus abused, the people were desirous to go against the Lamanites to battle, and they did afflict the king sorely with their complaints. Limhi reluctantly grants their request, and they are beaten by the Lamanites. Motivated by the subsequent suffering of widows and orphans, the Nephites again go to battle and are again defeated, then a third time go to battle and are a third time defeated. While Limhi reluctantly allowed the first attack, there's no indication that he led it or authorized the subsequent attacks. And the fact that the Lamanites left him in office suggests that they knew he counseled the submission of the people that they ultimately accept. Following their third defeat, Limhi's people did humble themselves even to the dust, subjecting themselves to the yoke of bondage, submitting themselves to be smitten and to be driven to and fro and burdened according to the desires of their enemies. In the depths of humility, they cry mightily to God, yea, even all the day long, that he would deliver them out of their afflictions. Through hard experience, Limhi's people have become like Messiah's wiser people, who without hard experience viewed themselves in their own carnal state even less than the dust of the earth, and who cried aloud with one voice saying, Oh, have mercy and apply the atoning blood of Christ that we may receive forgiveness of our sins. Limhi's people, like those of Messiah too, are now ready to be summoned to the temple to hear Ammon 1 repeat King Benjamin's discourse and to receive the salvation it offers. And Limhi is eager to reconnect them with Alma 1 or the prophets in Zarahemla who can deliver the needed message and facilitate the making of required covenants. He understands that his abilities as scholar, priest, and king are not adequate to the task of saving his people. Recognizing, before Ammon 1's arrival, the need to reconnect with the prophets from whom the Zenophites have wrongly separated themselves, Limhi tasks a few men to go north and find Zarahemla or Alma 1. Rather than Zarahemla, the expedition finds the destroyed civilization of the Jaredites, a land which was covered with dry bones, yea, a land which had been peopled and which had been destroyed, and they, having supposed it to be the land of Zarahemla, returned to the land of Nephi, bringing with them the record of the people written in an unknown language on the 24 gold plates. The dead Jaredites, the expedition discovers, are emblematic. Mormon uses them here, as Amalekai had in the book of Omni, and as Moroni later will in the book of Ether. The annihilated Jaredites serve as a surrogate and symbol of the Nephites, who are poised at the threshold of utter destruction because they have rejected the counsel of prophets. They foreshadow the fate that awaits a people who have turned away from God unless they turn back to him. Limhi seemingly saw the relevance of the 24 plates to his and his people's fate. Along with his per se love of the written word, the perceived relevance of the record may explain his inordinate interest in knowing the contents of the plates. Commenting on his eagerness, G writes...
Quote, Limhi, as a passionate scripturist, was the first to want to read the record of the lost people contained in the 24 gold plates, that matter engaging his attention even before he attempted to rescue his people, or get out of the 50% tax bracket, unquote. Thus, one of the first things Limhi asks Ammon one is this, Knowest thou of anyone who can translate? For I am desirous that these records should be translated into our language, for perhaps they will give us a knowledge of a remnant of the people who have been destroyed from whence these records came. Ammon 1 replies that the prophet Mosiah too is a seer who can translate records in unknown languages. And now when Ammon had made an end of speaking these words, the king rejoiced exceedingly and gave thanks to God. Here, Limhi seems to rejoice more as a scholar than as the king of a people in need of rescue. Mosiah 2's emissary, Ammon 1, gives Limhi hope, both that he can know the content of the plates and that his people may correct their ur error by returning to the land of Zarahemla. Limhi summons his people to the temple, and Ammon delivers to them King Benjamin's discourse. Now humble, like Mosiah 2's people, and like them having heard Benjamin's words, King Limhi entered into a covenant with God and also many of his people to serve him and keep his commandments. And it came to pass that King Limhi and many of his people were desirous to be baptized, but there was none in the land that had authority from God. In addition to the Messiah preached in the main text of Benjamin's discourse, Limhi's people need to be connected with the Messiah, Mosiah, preached in the subtext of that discourse, who has authority from God. While they are able to hear the word and are resolved to abide the will of God, while they are eager to make the covenant Benjamin's people made, Limhi and the Zenophites are not yet able to fully commit themselves to the path God has marked for them. To fully repent as a people and be baptized, they must return to the land of Zarahemla and be led by the prophet they have rejected. Mosiah too who is surrogate for the rejected Mosiah one, and Alma one, who is surrogate for Abinadi, the prophet they killed in the land of Nephi. Advised by Gideon on the means, and guided by Mosiah two's emissary Ammon one, or more precisely wordplay and explicit text suggests by God, Limhi and his people do return to Zarahemla, are received with joy by Mosiah two, their savior or deliverer, and are baptized by Alma one. They are thus fully reestablished in the place and reincorporated in the polity God had led them to through the ministrations of the prophet Mosiah I. After suffering and more miraculously than in Limhi's case, escaping oppression similar to those Limhi and his people suffered, Alma I and the more righteous Zenophites who accepted Amenadi's teachings also returned to Zarahemla. Because they have a prophet, Alma one, among them, they are able to return and be reincorporated without the aid of an emissary of the prophet Mosiah two. The emergence of the Almas. While the book of Mosiah highlights the superiority of Mosiah family leadership over Zenob family leadership, a still more important political theme of the book is the emergence of the Alma family as the first family of Nephite politics prophet, priest, and chief judge. The return of the Zenophites to the land of Nephi and its aftermath poses a governance problem for Mosiah II and a rhetorical problem for Mormon. 
Mosiah 2's task is to process all the contradictory evidence he now has on governance best practices and then mark the future political path of his people. Mormon's task is to efface the Mosiah family that has distinguished itself and mark the emergence of what will prove to be the first family of Nephite history, the Alma family, that will be the connecting thread in the Book of Mormon narrative for the next ten generations. The two agendas converge in the close relationship that seems to exist between the two families and in Mosiah II's nomination of Alma II as the first chief judge in the new political regime he establishes. The considerations that drive Mosiah II's decision to end the monarchy are fairly straightforward. On the positive side of the ledger for continuing the monarchy are Mosiah I, Benjamin, and Mosiah II himself. Ah, Benjamin, Mosiah II says, echoing Alma I, if ye could have men for your kings who would do even as my father Benjamin did for this people, it would be expedient that ye should always have kings to rule over you. But considerations on the negative side of the ledger outnumber the positive considerations. Mosiah II cites the corruption and disaster inflicted upon the subjects of King Noah and the Jaredites, and the monarchical powers that led to that corruption and disaster. He also mentions the past and possible future corruption of his own elite sons, who have now repented, renounced any right to rule, and left the land of Zarahemla on a mission to the land of Nephi. That mission, which like the mission of Ammon I, is an ironic antitype of the Zenith migration, proves to be dispositive in ending the monarchy, probably motivated by hero worship of his namesake Ammon I, and by a desire to escape the adulation and privileged status that contributed to his personal descent into sin, Ammon II proposes to his father that he be permitted to undertake a religious and political mission to the land of Nephi. Like Zenith before him, Ammon II believes there is good in the Lamanites. Like Zenith, he has the political goal of fostering peace between the Lamanites and the Nephites. Like Zenith, his migration is the reverse of Mosiah I, his great-grandfather's migration. But critically, unlike Zenith, but like Ammon I, Ammon II is on a mission authorized by God through his prophet. And unlike Zenith, Ammon II bears the gospel of Christ. Sallying forth with the approval of God and his prophet, Ammon II and his companions succeed in converting the Lamanites in the very lands where the Zenophites miserably failed, the city of Nephi and the lands of Shemlon and Shalom. The other three sons of Messiah join Ammon II in his quest, thus leaving no son of Messiah in Zarahemla who can become monarch. Lacking a successor, Recognizing the harm of bad monarch can do, fully aware of the burden being king places on a man who wears the crown, and probably persuaded by his friend and close associate Ammon I, Mosiah II proposes that kings be replaced by chief judges who are selected by the people and subject to removal by a group of lower judges. While the people were the ultimate arbiters, Mosiah II apparently tapped Alma II as the first chief judge, just before he asks the people whom they want to succeed him as their ruler, Mosiah gives Alma II, the interpreters, other sacred artifacts, and all the historical records that have been kept by the kings. 
after the people predictably name his oldest son, Aaron, who had already departed for the land of Nephi and is therefore unavailable, Mosiah too proposes a new form of government, a form inspired by experiences of Alma I, in which a chief judge takes the place of the king. The people, who love Mosiah too dearly and esteem him more than any other man, then appoint as their first chief judge Alma II, the man to whom Mosiah II had previously given tokens of the right to rule, artifacts the kings had long possessed, and whom, indirectly, Mosiah II had empowered to head their religion, another power customarily held by the king. Mosiah's preference that Alma II succeed him must have been obvious to the people, and his influence over them was unrivaled. But why did Mosiah tap Alma II to be the first chief judge? We have some evidence that may help us answer this question. Alma I and his family were an integral part of Messiah's court after their arrival in Zarahemla. This is apparent in the extraordinary powers Messiah confers on Alma I before tapping Alma II to be his successor. This conferral of power is surprising. In addition to anointing Messiah II as king at the end of his discourse, Benjamin had appointed priests to teach the gospel of Christ and remind the people of the covenant they made. Thus, when Alma arrived in Zarahemla, there was an established religious order in the land with a man, Messiah II, at the head of the religion and with priests set apart to administer it. The Xenophites, including Alma I, could have been integrated into that religion, their separate faith and they disappearing, as Limhi and his kingdom did after he rejoined the polity in Zarahemla. But that does not happen. Instead, in Mormon's account, after Alma I arrives in Zarahemla, the gospel dispensation of Benjamin and Mosiah is supplanted by the dispensation of Abinadi and Alma I. Mosiah is portrayed as authorizing this displacement of his father's gospel dispensation. He authorizes Alma I to organize churches and appoint priests, with every priest preaching the word according as it was delivered to him by the mouth of Alma. The people who join the religion Alma administers are called the people of God, and the Lord did pour out his spirit upon them, and they were blessed and prospered in the land. This name, for those who follow Christ, as directed by Alma, the people of God, becomes normative for all who accept Christ, indicating that Alma's churches become the sole venue for the communal worship of Christ. When conflict arises among believers and must be adjudicated, Alma I brings the disputants before Mosiah II to be judged. But Mosiah says, I judge them not, therefore I deliver them into thy hands to be judged. If the disputes are secular or civil, Mosiah is inexplicably conferring upon Alma the power of the state that eventually passes to Alma II. However, these disputes are probably theological, not civil. So Messiah here probably just endorses Alma's authority as high priest and leader of all who follow Christ, as a leader fully empowered to adjudicate religious disputes and regulate religious affairs in the kingdom, tasks that previously fell to the king. Later, when conflict arises between those who do and do not follow Alma I, Mosiah exercises state power to prohibit unbelievers from persecuting believers, the same power Alma II will later exercise and thereby spark a religious civil war. Mosiah and Alma I occupy Zarahemla's two positions of pinnacle power, Mosiah II being the king, Alma I the high priest. 
Unsurprisingly, given their intimate association in the court, a close friendship exists between their elite sons, Almatu and Aaron, Ammon, Omner, and Himni. Almatu was probably likewise intimately acquainted with the daughters of the Messiah family. There is reason to believe that he married a daughter of Mosiah II, or more likely, of Mosiah's brother, Helaman I. Mosiah may have had no daughters. Alma's first son, Helaman II, was probably named after his wife, father, or uncle, Helaman I. If this plausible supposition be granted, Mosiah tapped as his successor the man in the kingdom who was most closely related by blood and marriage to the kingdom's two most powerful men. A man with these credentials would be well positioned to preserve legitimacy inherent in the previous regime as a new regime and form of government emerged to supplant it. Mormon marks the emergence of Alma II as the main man in Zarahemla by the way he narrates the conversion of Alma II and the sons of Messiah. Though Messiah's sons are the princes of the kingdom whose political prominence positions them to be the main protagonists, Mormon makes Alma II the main character in the story. After opening with the princes, he shifts the focus to Alma II, making Messiah's sons supporting characters. Now the sons of Messiah were numbered among the unbelievers, and also one of the sons of Alma was numbered among them. He became a very wicked and idolatrous man, and he was a man of many words, and he became a great hindrance to the prosperity of the church. While he was going about to destroy the church of God with the sons of Messiah, the angel of the Lord appeared unto them, saying, Alma, arise and stand forth, for why persecutest thou the church of God? The narrative remains focused primarily on Alma II and Alma I, marking the displacement of the Messiah family and the emergence of the Almas as the first family, the designated prophet leaders of the Nephite nation. Conclusion In all his writings, Mormon's main theme is the Messiah, and his main purpose is to testify of Christ, but he is also a historian of the Nephite nation, and he often communicates his powerful testimony of the Messiah through artful historical narratives. In the book of Messiah... His main rhetorical purpose as a historian is to mark the emergence of the Almas as the first family of Nephite history. Most of the book is devoted to narrating their Xenophyte background, then the story of Alma I and Alma II. But Mormon makes his main narratives resonate more powerfully by embedding them in smaller frame narratives that comment on and develop important sub-themes in the embedded main narrative. The Book of Mosiah has three important frame narratives. The first frame narrative is the coronation frame of Benjamin's great gospel discourse. That frame creates a political subtext that marks Mosiah II and Benjamin and Mosiah I as the legitimate rulers of the Nephites and Mulekites in their respective times. That first frame narrative and the narrative it frames are a component part of the second frame narrative the account of Benjamin and Mosiah II's rule, which precedes and follows the main narrative in the book of Mosiah, the history of the Xenophites. The Xenophite narrative, which is embedded in the Benjamin and Mosiah II narrative, then has its own frame narrative, the Limhi narrative, in which the Zenoph and Noah narratives are embedded. The Limhi frame leaves no ambiguity in the Zenoph and Noah narratives, 
We know that the actions of Zenith and Noah have been disastrous for their people before we start reading them. The plight of Limhi and his people make that clear. But the frame narrative that most fully and powerfully comments on the narrative it frames is the Mosiah II and Benjamin frame of the Zenithite history. The core message developed by the interaction of these frame and embedded narratives is the importance of being led by prophets. The extended contrast between Benjamin and Noah makes a slam-dunk case for the necessity of prophetic leadership. But arguably, the case is made most strongly by the failures of two good men, Zenith and Limhi, and the contrasting success of their prophetic counterparts, Mosiah I and Mosiah II. The fact that good men cannot adequately lead their people and avoid catastrophe without the guidance from living prophets marks the fact that the catastrophe is not contingent on bad people being in power. The problem is structural. In the absence of prophets, scholars reading scripture become our source for knowledge of God and his will. These narratives demonstrate that sophic scholarship and practical wisdom are inadequate substitutes for mantic prophets. Unless we have the ongoing guidance of God that living prophets provide, we are bound to go astray as individuals and as a people. This is a lesson the world needed to learn as the fullness of the gospel of Christ was restored by the Book of Mormon and the prophet Joseph Smith. It is the lesson the Book of Mormon teaches by contrasting the parallel dynasties of the Mosiah and Zenith families. Val Larson was born in Blackfoot and raised in Moreland, Idaho. He earned a B.A. in philosophy and English from BYU, an M.A. and Ph.D. in English from the University of Virginia, and a Ph.D. in marketing for Virginia Tech, while teaching at Virginia Tech, Truman State University, and currently at James Madison University, he has published articles on Flannery O'Connor's fiction, the Book of Mormon, and a wide variety of marketing topics. This has been a recording of Profit or Loss, Mosiah 1 slash Zenith, Benjamin slash Noah, Mosiah 2 slash Limhi, and The Emergence of the Almas, by Val Larson, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 60, 2024, read by Val Larson. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited, and it is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide variety of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.